Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Rebecca Watterson, a researcher on the project and PhD candidate at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Professor Greta Jones, Emeritus Professor of History at Ulster University, about experiences of tuberculosis in Belfast. Hi Greta, welcome to this episode. Um, Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in tuberculosis? Well, um, I was writing quite a bit about Irish science and uh, in the uh, 90s. I'd already um, written about Darwin and the history of medicine and eugenics. And then round about um, the late 90s, I got a phone call from uh, the gentleman who ran the um, Welcome Institute. And he said, look, you're doing work on Ireland now. And we're very, very interested in, in, in we're interested in encouraging people to go into the history of medicine, history of science in Ireland. Um, would you like to... Um, but, devise a product and, uh, about Irish uh, medical history and submit it to us. And I talked with various people about it. And one thing that struck me was that, uh, first of all, Ireland had a real problem with a tuberculosis. It's epidemic, um, increasing numbers of deaths from TB, um, really peaked about the first uh, decade of the um, 20th century. Whereas in Scotland, it was still high, but in in, uh, most of England and Wales, it had begun to decline in the late 19th century. That made um, Ireland very different from most of Europe and America, uh, which were also seeing a decline. The only two other countries I discovered were also peaking in their TB epidemic at that time uh, were Norway and Japan. And um, I thought, therefore, it would be an interesting um, investigation to look at why Ireland was increasingly seeing mortality from tuberculosis rise at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And also the other thing about it was that at that moment, TB throughout the world was beginning to increase again. Um, it was because of um, drug resistance, um, which had developed, also the AIDS epidemic as well, which um, it killed a lot of people, but one of the major causes of death among AIDS, AIDS patients was tuberculosis. So it made TB much more fashionable, much more interesting to medical people. Uh, and uh, Ireland had a unique history in the British Isles and also in Europe for high rates of TB when everybody else recovered uh, from their epidemic. So that's the reason. And tuberculosis has been described as one of the deadliest diseases and epidemics in Ireland. And in the late 19th century, as you've said, the deaths were declining in Britain, but they were rising in Ireland. Can you point to any factors that can explain that difference? At the beginning of the 19th century, Ireland was predominantly rural. But between um, after the famine, between about 1850 and 1900, her urban population increased so that by 1900, Ireland had developed into at least 50% of people living in cities and towns. Uh, and contacts, just like our, the disease we're suffering from at the moment, contact um, and association 
with greater numbers of people is one of the important uh, factors in increasing tuberculosis in the absence of any cure. So I think it's Ireland's urbanisation that was the driving um, factor behind it. I also think that that's far, um, that um, from my investigations, the epidemic in Ireland begins in the late 19th century in the northeast, in the um, counties of um, uh, the six counties, basically, and around Belfast. And of course, uh, in the late 19th century, there was very rapid industrialization in Belfast and its surrounding towns. And of course, that brought people together in factories and in um, crowded um, housing. People moved more, uh, were in contact with a greater number of people. And that, I think, was the cause of it, initial cause, the initial push to increase mortality from TB. But eventually it does spread to all parts of Ireland. So in fact, by about 1900, Dublin has got a higher death from TB than Belfast, but Belfast had peaked um, in the 1880s and 1890s. Ireland's overall rate was still very high, higher, the highest in the British Isles. And was the experience of tuberculosis in Belfast shaped by gender, class or age? Yes, um, all three, I, I suppose. First of all, it, uh, unlike the COVID we're suffering from now, TB is a disease of young people. Um, they catch it much more easily and their mortality from it is um, high. So that the, the mortality in age range from about 15 to uh, mid-20s uh, up to the age of 35 is the highest of most of the um, age groups. It's a disease for the young. That doesn't mean to say that um, you don't die from it at later ages, but quite often what happened, there was a proportion of people who were infected, had an illness and then recovered. Uh, but later in life, sometimes ill health and age um, cause the recurrence of the disease. But it is a, it is a sad disease because it's a disease which target young people. So yeah, it's a disease of the young. And as, uh, as far as gender is concerned, most studies of tuberculosis um, throughout Europe, America and elsewhere, identify it um, quite strongly, particularly in cities, as a disease um, that affects young males, affects males more than females. But in Belfast, it's it was the opposite. Um, and females had a higher rate of tuberculosis than males up until 20 and between 20 and 25 it was males but then after that it, females again become uh, uh, very much more susceptible to the disease. I thought very hard about this and, um, and looked at the evidence and I, I devised a hypothesis that I thought this was connected to the very high numbers of women who worked in the linen textile industry. Um, it was predominantly a female industry and um, you went into the mill at very young ages when you were very susceptible to it. Um, while I was um, writing the book, um, uh, in fact about three months from, I think, from my own publication, there was a book came out by William Johnson about Japan. And again, Japan was different because in Japan, uh, the female death rate was higher than the male. So I read the book and, it, um, and Johnson, who I didn't know, and he was working independently, had come to the same conclusion. Um, there was a big textile industry in Japan and it was predominantly female. So that's why in um, both Japan and um certainly Northern Ireland, Belfast region, 
women died more frequently from it, contracted it more than men. Class. Class is, um, affects all diseases, I would say. What I think, though, is in the late 19th century, it's much less obvious. A lot of um, middle-class families got it too. And if you look at, um, the, uh, for example, in particular, some of them go away to school, boarding school. Some of them go into the army or in barracks. Others go to university and are in university dormitories or mixing with um, uh, young men of their own age at that time um, in the late 19th century. So that, for example... Sir Charles Cameron, who was quite a well-to-do individual and who was public health inspector, superintendent for Dublin, he lost two sons to tuberculosis in the late 19th century. So it's a, a disease which I think, as it declines, becomes more obviously linked to deprivation and class. And although I'm not actually prove this, I do argue that it's in the 20th century, particularly in the 20s and 30s, that the link between TB and social class becomes more obvious there because, uh, and I, but when it hits, it hits everyone. And was tuberculosis a feared disease in the 19th and 20th centuries? Or was there a stigma or sense of shame associated with the illness? Yes, it, it was feared. Um, and one of the reasons was it, it it was very insidious. It usually started with what you would say was a cold. That was it. And you quite often recover from the cold. But then if you, after a few weeks after that cold, you noticed you still had a, a hacking cough, that sort of. And occasionally you had, you got very hot and sweaty and feverish and then it would pass. In most um, young people of that, period they would have some suspicion that they might have caught it um uh, but sometimes you did recover the uh, more people actually came in contact with the disease and actually developed it so there was always this terrible emotional experience of fear apprehension wondering whether you in fact have got it, it, it hoping you hadn't keeping on at your normal things and then no, you don't seem to be getting better your cough seems to get getting worse and of course for pulmonary tb which was the vast majority of cases were respiratory tb it infected the lungs after a while if you saw when you coughed the first blood you know that your lungs were being destroyed even then it took quite a while the um, process of um, infection and serious illness and death could take a while and occasionally you would have a, re a respite you would feel better you might be able to go somewhere travel or, um, and then gradually debility tiredness coughing blood being brought up would return and so it was an awful disease it's um, suspense of it was terrible for um, young people. And in that um, novel about tuberculosis and sanatorium that um, Thomas Mann, the German writer, wrote um, called The Magic Mountain, the first pages are taken up with a young man who's arrives in this um, Swiss town, Davos, uh, to see a doctor, but he doesn't think he's got TB. And to prove it, he runs up a mountain to show everybody he's healthy, and he manages to do it. But at the end, he, he's feels the reaction against it is very strong. He's in denial, but eventually he has to go into the sanitarium. So it's a cruel disease that plays with you, if you know what I mean, and um, not pleasant at all. Um, stigma, 
there's a rumor going around in the mid and early 19th century that it might be hereditary. So if you see it, this affects the middle class in particular. If a member of, of your um, family has it or has reputedly died from it, it sometimes, quite often was concealed. The, I think the real stigma comes after they discover that it's a transmissible disease, that it is passed by from one person to another by infection. And that really does mean that there are situations in which you hide it or you know people are shunning you or they don't want to share places with you. Um, all the hygiene surrounding keeping um, your keeping yourself safe from TB involve things like not sharing cuts, not being too close to anybody, not um, um, kissing and things like that, all kinds of... It isn't a nice disease, it's a cruel disease. Um, and what type of therapeutic interventions, if any, existed for tuberculosis in Belfast? Well, um, it, it, it's only in 1882 that the German scientist Koch discovers that it's passed on by a bacteria. And that means it is infectious and um, the bacteria is in your breath uh, around you. You exude it when you talk or speak, whatever you do. Um, that leads to a public health campaign to, first of all, introduce hygiene, um, which you uh, advise the tubercular po person to um, uh, follow, a hygienic regime, um, mainly to protect other people. And then people um, and then the public health officials began to be interested in serious forms of segregation of the tubercular tubercular from the population at large. As for curing it, basically until the drugs of the 1940s, there isn't really a cure. Um, and um, the most that was advised is um, Take your, um, if you're ill, go to a place which is considered to have a healthy climate. Um, that is very important in the history of TB. There's a whole book written about the climatic theory of disease at the time, which measures different um, climates um, uh, with regard to its efficacy in, in curing TB or stopping TB um, from spreading. So you have discussions of um, dry, hot climates as opposed to going to Swiss mountains that have bracing air and um, sharp, cold climates. And is it better in the desert? And is it um, uh, better at the seaside? And this was widely discussed. So actually, a lot of people did go to travel, at least rich people did travel to um, try and get rid of their tuberculosis. Um, and it was also behind quite a lot of emigration to Australia and to the USA in search of a climate which would uh, lead to um, the remission of the disease. Um, of course, when we get to emigration, it's generally um, middle-class people who can afford to go there. The sanatorium, the TB sanatorium, becomes a big thing at the end of the um, 19th century and into the um, and very much in the 20th century. Um, and it, it's um, it can isolate you. It, 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 it's usually built in what's regarded as a very healthy place, climatically wise, and it can um, it feed you well. It gives you rest. 
it opens the windows, gives you fresh air. And although people went there just to recover from illness, it becomes something very important for uh, the control of tuberculosis. So throughout Europe, from the um, 1880s onwards, there are sanatoriums built all over the place, and particularly in places like Switzerland, which are regarded as um, very healthy and good for the tuberculosis. So sanatorium treatment was becoming very important, but you paid for it. And in Ireland, the very first, what you might call, well, it was a publicly funded um, sanatorium, which was free to the poor, was White Abbey Sanatorium, which was actually built um, on, uh, on uh, where the university now is, it, uh, in a set of um, Nissen huts type thing, which were erected before the university with just fields and then the lock, and that was and winds that blew and were considered to be healthy. So they built um, White Abbey Sanatorium for basically poor law um, patients who couldn't have pay, uh, pay but were um, and put them in there and so it's the first purpose-built publicly supported sanatorium in Ireland and later on they got one in Dublin too. As for that a lot of people did um, all kinds of things to try and cure themselves. Massive um, industry of false cures, um, pills and odd treatments and things like that. That was part of the experience of TB. Um, and um, the slogan they usually use, well, you don't, don't, you don't know whether it will cure you until you try it. It's a very good way of selling pills because it's true, isn't it? It is true. Um, in 1918, the Central Tuberculosis Institute opened on Durham Street in Belfast. Did this new facility represent a change in how the disease was being addressed? Well, there was a big debate just before the First World War about what the best strategy was. And um, they sent a um, couple of um, doctors from Ireland to attend it. The big debate was between um, the French, who believed in dispensaries. They believed in small institutions which were built in the community and to which sufferers could uh, attend. Uh, the Germans believed in sanatoria and uh, built many of them. Uh, and... Uh, they had had in Germany uh, uh, some form of national health insurance, not, not a national health service, but insurance, which uh, meant that some working class communities could access the sanatorium. So they would have public sanatorium as well. Um, in the end, uh, the dispensary um, and sanatorium developed side by side in Ireland. Uh, I'm not sure whether... The what the dispensary did, which was valuable, it basically was able to contact some sufferers, um, alleviate their symptoms in various ways, and in worth the worst cases, try and get them into a sanatorium. Um, although there was only one publicly built sanatorium under um, White Abbey, uh, and then one in Dublin at, at Crooksling, Sling, gradually local authorities started to... Um, contribute towards the upkeep of a very badly ill patient who hadn't got any um, financial resources. They would, um, you know, uh, pay for certain numbers of beds that were reserved for under the poor law for people who couldn't. Sanitarium, there's a big debate about whether they did any good or not. I don't think dispensaries ever offered cures, and there's a very um, frank statement by um, the... Um, a medic who ran a, a dispensary in Dublin in the 1940s who said, 
we had a great big um, barrel of cod liver oil, which we used to dole out to the patients. And he said, I don't know, it made them feel better, but it didn't cure them. And you sometimes felt sorry because there wasn't really anything much you could do for them. And, uh, so, but the dispensaries acted in a way as tracking people. It was quite difficult to keep uh, um, control of um, the, the statistics on who died uh, of from TB because many doctors would not put it on the certificate because it, the, the family was re, would be resentful and they would feel you know they would perhaps contradict it. It, it was there. It, it, Many TB deaths were concealed because of the stigma. So, but dispensaries in the community would have a list of people who they considered to be patients. And sometimes, when they compared the death certificates with the numbers on the patient list, it was not the same. You know, was, something was going on between that. I don't think the dispensaries, apart from tracking people and seeing where they were, did much good. Um, there were. Um, Operations, there were various experiments taking place in the interwar years, um, administration of um, silver salts and gold and lots of very horrible things you had to take, which did absolutely no good. There were some operations, um, um, a, a friend of my mother, uh, who was a child, young woman in the 30s, she had a lung removed, a tuberculosis lung, just one lung, you've got two, so she was okay, but um, she had that operation to remove it, could do things like that. Is it possible to estimate the number of people who either experienced or died from tuberculosis in Belfast? Well, we do know the numbers in Belfast who died. I can give them to you if you um, like. Um, in Belfast, there was a Belfast Health Commission in um, set up by the local authority, um, in, and it reported in 1908, and it looked at the figures for deaths from TB in, in Belfast for 1900 to um, 1902, and um, it, it estimated that the death uh, rate for women, women in Belfast the numbers of people who actually died from it. That's mortality as opposed to morbidity. It didn't tell you how many are suffering from it. But there were in that period 338 per 100,000. Was The male rate was 293 per 100,000. Um, in England at the time, 1901 to 10, um, there, there was, um, well, 1901, only 128 people of both sexes died from TB during that period. So you can see there was a much more serious problem in Ireland at that time. And in uh, all Ireland, the death rate about 1901 was 202 per 100. So, um, you, so the figures hide all these different outcomes for different social classes, individuals and genders. Um, and they always tend to be worst in urban areas uh, and crowded areas. And um, the, but in... But they, they looked into it because they knew they wanted to find out just how bad it was. It was a health commission that looked at all kinds of disease. But one of the things it did look at was tuberculosis. It was regarded as such a serious problem that um, due to pressure from um, local authorities in Ireland, um, the government actually at Westminster actually passed the first housing bill um, for the provision of housing in the whole of the British Isles in 1908. And it was specifically... Um, 
carried through because they thought it might, not just there were bad housing, but they thought it might bring down the tuberculosis rate. So what are your reflections on the experiences of tuberculosis in Belfast and more widely the island of Ireland during this period? Well, I well I, everything I look at now seems to be refracted through the lens of our present problem. It's uh, in many ways it's so similar in that it, uh, it 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 progresses the disease if you can call it that, or it spreads by human contact and breathing in um, a virus. In in this case, in the case of TB, a bacteria. But it's so different because, as I say, old people die of it, but young people are particularly um, susceptible to it. And it's a whole world that we've forgotten now. But what also strikes me is the way the culture and understanding of TB has almost collapsed. And in fact, um, when it started to come back in the late 60s and 70s, lots of GPs couldn't recognise it anymore because they hadn't been taught about it. They thought that the drugs of the 1940s had completely eradicated it. Uh, And um, it took them a while to actually, when they saw somebody with tuberculosis, beginning to rise in inner London, for example, and other crowded places, they didn't, um, they just didn't recognise it for a while for what it was. Um, it, It... it tells you, um, and there's an, an awful lot of culture uh, connected with it about, pers- uh, about re- there's a literature connected with, with um, tuberculosis. Um, and uh, uh, contributing to that, there were a lot of Irish patients who went to Davos in, in Switzerland for a cure. The same where Thomas Mann was in the sanatoriums there. And they set up a kind of little um, uh, publication that they produced irregular intervals with stories in poems, and it was it was um, decorated by quite talented artists. So that's part of the TB legacy, including this mag- magnificent set of sanatoriums throughout the, um, the the world, which were experiments in architecture. Um, we, are we going to get anything like that out of this epidemic? It partly because we've learned so much, including from the experience in in TB, because what eventually killed TB, at least for a while as a serious disease, was first of all, herd immunity played a part. People who had it and recovered uh, and never experienced its return, as you say, that that's not necessary to, sometimes it came back and killed you, but they recovered. Most people, around about 1950, 99.9 something percent of the population could be tested to be shown that they had account, encountered TB and had some natural resistance to it. Um, but it would have never gone away the way it did without science and without the drugs that came. That's the other thing that I reflect on. In a way, it was a mir- miraculous success. And because it took place, well, it, it, it was one of the first and most significant successes that science had. Um, now um, the scientists just got to work. They assumed that they could do the same things, find some protective vaccine um, or treat treat it with drugs. There has been developments of COVID with drugs and they were treating it with drugs. Um, resistance, uh, that's a pro- possibly a problem that's coming, new variants. That's exactly what happened with TB. And they were a bit careless because when they the, the drugs had 
that was shown right from the beginning um, to develop resistance. And when they were administered in the 1940s, people were writing articles about, well, you can, they, um, you can develop resistance to them, the disease can develop. And it was probably, probably very carelessly used at first. Um, I think that, um, I don't know whether, we, we're still in the middle of this. Um, we hopefully see things which are going to improve. We're much more aware of what things may happen in the future. Um, but I think probably looking back, I think TB was with us for a long time, much longer time, much more part of the the day to day experience of people than it than hopefully touch wood COVID will that will be. Um, and uh, as I said, it created its own culture, literature, and even music, lots of opera. And, and brings in consumption of the death of the beautiful young maiden uh, from um, tuberculosis. Uh, one thing in connection with that, if, if people in Belfast want to see what I mean, Van Morrison wrote a blues in the 1960s called TB Sheets. And if you can get hold of it, it's a great blues. Uh, he's not the only one who wrote about that. There are some folk songs among um, black Americans about TB because when they migrated to the north in the um, early 20th century, TB was a real problem for them too, going from rural to urban areas. And I, I went to a conference where I was told that the tango, many of the uh, um, the um, songs and the music was written, was the story of the young girl who goes to Buenos Aires and catches TB and dies at age 20 and things like that. But Van Morrison, TB sheets were, you could stay at home if you've got TB, and some people are still getting it in the 60s, and I think it was a young girlfriend of his who got it. Um, but you have to um, keep the, the room and everything touching you very clean and sterilized. And for a working class home in the 60s, many of them didn't have washing machines and to wash and dry bedding. So the council used to provide you with freshly laundered sterilized sheets, and that's what, what they were called TB sheets. And he, he makes that the, the very, very excoriating um, lament about the, his girlfriend who had TB. But um, that's where the title comes from. Have we, we lost all that? It's become invisible because nobody wants to talk about it or recall it or relive it. So that's what I think about. I think about this epidemic and that epidemic, what differences there were and how this one will end up. Great, great. I just have one final question. Yeah. And that is where can people learn more about your work and the subject? Um, well, um, well, thank you for advertising my work. It's a, a book called Captain of All These Men of Death, which is what John Bunyan um, described tuberculosis in his seventeenth, um, one of his 17th century ser sermons. Um, and it's a history of tuberculosis in Ireland. Um, it's um, there are uh, some of the um, shorter pieces on the actual experience of tuberculosis, which goes much more into the emotional things. Um, but that, if you want a, a, a compendium of what happened in Ireland, that's it. Um, if you want a, a general history of TB, um, Thomas Dormandy, a man called Thomas Dormandy, he wrote a book called The White Plague, uh, and that 
doesn't just tell you about TB throughout the world, but mainly America and Europe. Um, it also describes the scientific discoveries. It's a history also of how the drugs were developed and what, and also what the therapeutics were before the drugs were developed. So it's quite useful if you're interested in that. Um, if you're interested in um, America, there's a lady called Georgina Feldberg, F-E-L-D-B-E-R-G. Um, she talks about it in the, uh, America. Of course, William Johnson talks what the, uh, about Japan in what uh, in a book called The Modern Epidemic. And uh, if you're interested in its effect in other cultures, Randall Packard um, wrote a book about South Africa called The White Plague. White Plague and Black Labour. That's what that's called. And it, it, it discusses 20th century um, tuberculosis in, Af in South Africa. That's very interesting. So, um, oh, and in England, Linda Bryder is, is a classic text um, on whose work I built because she did the whole history of England and Wales, the epidemic there. So I think that, though, if you start with that, you'll be, you'll be well, quite well read actually by the end of it. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Professor Jones, and for sharing some very interesting insights on experiences of tuberculosis in Belfast in the 19th and 20th centuries. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com. Dot com.